So it's going to be kind of a sobering kind of time. And I'm going to sit down most of the time today. I'm, I'm so thrilled with life. Tuesday, I went in and I had my right eye lasered with cataracts and astigmatism. And so I, I did not know how blurry the world had become to me until Wednesday morning, I walk outside and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I could see pebbles in the driveway that was a part of the concrete. And I'm like, I didn't even know they were there. Then Thursday, I came into the office and I was driving down the road and all those little yellow daisies growing on the side of the road. And I'm like, no way. I had no clue they were that vibrant. So uh, as far as bouncing around and trying to to figure out the distortion of my eyes. I'm getting my second one done June 2nd. I can't wait. But it's such a slow fade. And we kicked this whole series off on how it's a slow fade. And how there's this slow deterioration. And life for me, the normal way of seeing life for me was really cloudy and really blurry and really unclear. And it's so easy to get there spiritually. It, it, it's so easy to get there. So I'm really excited with the technology and with lasers and a new lens they put in. I'm like, no way, this is awesome. Even Caleb told Barb, she goes, Caleb said, Mommy, I'm so happy Daddy can see. <laughs> Which meant all of them were really scared to ride with me, right? <laughs> right, so grab your bulletin and uh, let's get into it today. I, I want to kick it off with this passage out of Genesis chapter 6. I want you to hear this. Genesis chapter 6 is really, really early into mankind on the planet. Genesis 6, uh, there's not a whole lot that's really gone down yet. It's probably in the first few hundred years of man's existence. And uh, the, the world is not populated. There's not people everywhere. But God makes this statement, this proclamation, and I want you to see it. The Lord saw, and I want you to circle a few words, the Lord saw the wickedness, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and how it was great on the earth and that every, listen, 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 that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, now ponder that. What a brutal description of humanity what a hard pill for us to swallow when we read a text such as that right I mean we want people to tell us that we're pretty and we're handsome and we're smart and we're good looking and I read passages like this and God goes no no this is a description of who you are in your fallen state separated and alienated from me you're 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 wicked every intention of the heart it's evil continually no that that that's you but most of us when we read stuff like this we want to think that this really is describing those other people out there come on we read texts like this and go oh i know a few people like that but we don't want to pick up the mirror and look at ourselves but this verse is not describing the all-star sinner it's describing us it's not describing like the super Center is describing us. And here, here, here would be some questions I want you to entertain. Why do we want to believe that we're in the good class of sinners? 
You ever feel that way? Again, when you look around you, do you ever feel like, well, when it comes to sinners, I'm not an all-star. I didn't let her in four sports. I didn't get the trophy. I'm not the biggest of them all. This is really talking about other people, right? Why do we want to believe that we're not totally depraved? Trevor broke this down last week so beautifully. Why do we really want to believe at the core of who we are that our spiritual condition is not vile, wicked, corrupt, diseased, infected? Man, that really shatters who we are, right? I mean, it really messes with the, the, the psychology of our day. It, no, people are good. No, 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 we're not. Why are we so quick to defend ourselves? You ever do that? Now, you don't have to elbow each other if you're married, but do you ever do that when uh, someone else brings up something? Are you quick to defend yourself? Why are we so devastated when our failures are exposed? Why? Why do we minimize our sin and magnify everybody else's? Why? Why do we promote the good things we've done to try to balance out those wrongs that are being highlighted? You ever do that? You ever play the dig me card? When a person brings up a fallacy or a fault or a wrong, do you ever run over to your little closet and say, well, let me tell you really how I'm not that bad? Because we all want to reach for something that says we're good, and none of us really want to believe that we're that bad. We, we, we don't. And and we struggle, and the never-ending cycle of comparison continues. And how we love to attack what we feel we're less likely to do. That's the society in which we live. We elevate and magnify those things that we wouldn't do. Other people may struggle with them, variable temptation, but we always will attack what we don't struggle with. Do you ever really struggle with keeping score and ranking sin? Anybody else fall into that boat? I mean, anybody else? I mean, right? I mean, I helped that lady at Kroger. Uh, I, I put a few bags in her car, and then I took that buggy, and I pushed it back over into that spot at Kroger. I didn't leave my buggy like other pagans parked just out in the middle of the parking lot. I did that. So that right there is a four. I got four good points today. I know when that person cut me off, the middle finger almost came up. It probably did. That's a negative one. Anybody do that junk where you keep score and you rank sin? And oh, how it, it just keeps us in a lost state. I mean, I was writing this down, how we do it. We do this. Anger. Oh, I'll give that a three. Alcoholism. Oh, drunks and I'm going to give that one about an eight. Uh, 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 Bitterness? Oh, I struggle with that one. Maybe a 2.5. Murder? That's a nine. Lust? Everybody struggles with lust. I'll give myself a 
two, adultery and homosexuality, when we throw those out, those are, we rank it, why? Because we oftentimes attack what we feel we're less likely to do. We're going to have a picnic today. Gluttony? But we've ranked that one compared to rape, have we not? And so we love to rank sin. And the insanity continues in us, in, inside of all of us. Here's something I wrote down. Our own personal depravity, yours, you, me, drop the comparison. Our depravity is cancerous. For who? All of us. And I wrote this, we're all, we don't want to we, we believe this, but we're all stage four sinners. No, no, not, not me. Yes, me. Even going back to what Paul said, I know that there's nothing good that dwells in me. No, not, nothing good dwells in me and my flesh and what I want to do, how I want to do life. If I'm left to my own, nothing good dwells within me. And this is our condition when we come into the world. Now, God made us body, soul, and spirit, right? We study that. We're triune. And, and so we really have this outside and this inside when we deal with individuals. The outside is this flesh, okay? We all got it. We call it our body, our human uniform, our earth suit. This is our body. Paul would even say later as he writes, we recognize no one according to the flesh any longer though we once did. Meaning the way we used to view people was how they look, the color of their hair and the color of their eyes and their body type. And Paul goes, no, no, no. We, we, that's not how we look at people. Why? Because he says, we're really looking inside the heart. The heart, listen to me, the body is nothing more than a shell for the heart. Who you really are is the heart. That, that's who we really are, all of us. So when we refer to the heart, we're talking about the mind and the will and the emotions and the spirit and the soul. Now, I know we could do a study on the difference between the soul and the spirit and all this, but when we talk about the heart, that's what we are talking about. The, the will of the person, the mind of the person, the, the spirit, the soul, what drives that person, their heart. Do you know over 900 passages in the scripture deal with the heart? Uh, you, you know, one of those great verses many of us memorize, trust in the Lord with all thine Hard and Jeremiah would write, Well, the heart is sick and deceitful and wicked. And I mean, just calm through the scripture, heart after heart after heart. The heart is the center of the human body. This is good. The heart is the center of the human body. Let me say it another way the heart is where the emotions, the cognitive thoughts, the desires that's where all that stuff is for us. Now, now. The Bible refers to the heart as kind of the steering wheel, if you will, of what drives what we do in life, the heart. David would say in Psalm 51:10, uh, God, create in me a clean heart. Uh, th this right here is going to continue to fade, 
right? I mean, they can do whatever they want to do and make little slits and laser this and blow up cataracts and try to clean it up. But this old thing right here is deteriorating more and more every day. I might be able to see better, but reality is uh, before long, if the hair don't take over, at least the inside part is going to fail me. And I'm like, I, I can't really hear that good. And before long, these grinders will probably break down. I mean, you can study Ecclesiastes. Solomon talks about all this stuff, right? Remember the Lord in the days of your youth before the evil day comes and your back hunches over and the almond tree blossoms and even talks about the cape of berry won't blossom. And that, that's an interesting one right there to study. But anyway, all, all this stuff he mentions, right? The body is going to fail, but the heart is who we really are. And people will say that at times, they got a good heart. What do you mean by that? What, what, what do you mean they got a good heart? So here's the point. Who or what controls the heart controls your actions and behavior. Y'all with me? Whatever, whoever, whatever has ownership, lordship, whatever that is, is going to drive how you talk, how you walk, how you live. It's an authority issue. John Mimi, it's an authority issue we were talking about. Our, our country does not respect authority. I, I mean, we see all this stuff going on in our nation, and really it's like, who's the authority of my heart? So, sin isn't just a behavioral problem. It's first a problem of the heart. It starts in the heart. It will always, your heart guides your words, your actions, everything. Well, I didn't mean to say that. No, you, you, you meant to say it. I didn't mean to do that. No, you meant to do it. It's, it's a heart thing. The heart tells the mouth what to say. And that, that's the reality. It's, it's like this. If I start to entertain that which is out of bounds, sinful, wicked, or whatever, and I allow lust to start to take root in my heart, it's just a matter of time before the physical act becomes a reality. Why? Because it's a heart issue. Once I give my heart away to do whatever it is, my behavior will follow. So it's all about our heart before God. So our biggest problem doesn't exist outside of us, it exists inside of us. Your biggest problem and mine exist inside. That's the reason we can remove people from certain geographical locations and situations, but until the heart changes, as we've said, wherever you go, you're still going to be there. I mean, right? But, but as we think about this whole thing with it's a heart issue, it's the same thing with worship. I mean, worship is, is more than an activity, or worship is more than just an expression. Worship is an attitude of the heart, because whatever you esteem, the greatest in your life is what your time and your money and your energy and your strength is going to be given to. So we don't come in here to worship. No, no, we don't come in here to try to find what we're going to esteem. What we've already esteemed is what we're going to give our time and energy to. Make sense? 
We, we worship through song. We worship through the word. We worship through giving. We worship through obedience and holiness and all this. Why? Because we esteem, we are worshiping God that way because we esteem him as being of the utmost value. Whatever you esteem, you give your time to. Now, come on. That, that, that's the truth right there. So all of us daily, I was talking to my buddy Josh earlier, all of us daily need to be rescued from us daily. All of us daily need to be rescued unto God daily. All of us daily need heart transformation daily. My buddy made this statement. He said, you know, listening just to hellfire and all this stuff, it was all about getting saved. Then what? Exactly. And most people have never been discipled and never been coached and never been equipped because many of us grew up in churches where it was like, you're going to die and go to hell, turn to burn. And we pray a prayer, get in a tank of water, we don't want to go to hell. But nobody ever taught us about the character of God and the love of God and the ways of God. Why? I need to be saved every day. Is salvation a one-time experience really when you're reborn? Yes, but I, 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 I need to be saved again today. I need to be rescued again today. I need to be delivered again today. Make sense? Y'all with me? All right, so it's interesting. So over the last three weeks, we, we've kind of looked at the train wreck of David's life. We, we combed back through 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and we saw then it happened and how David sinned and royally jacked it up. Then we see Nathan the prophet coming and Nathan the prophet confronts David and David is convicted and David has this incredible sense of godly sorrow and then David confesses to the Lord, I have sinned against you, you and you only have a sinned. And then Trevor so beautifully broke it down last week talking about how he moved from confessing and just the conviction to moving to a place of being cleansed, purge me, purify me with hyssop so that I can be whiter than snow. So David moves to this cleansing place. Today, we're going to look at David consecrating his heart to the Lord. That's a cool word. So Nick, even in that last song as we were singing it, consecrate to thee. Consecrate. What, what, what does that mean? Now, let me, let, let me say it another way before I get into it. As we've looked at this, here's the way I would word it. God's mercy and grace and righteousness has been demonstrated. Sin was met with God's unfailing love. Transgression was met with great compassion. Iniquity was met by God's cleansing power. So David is like really watched and really seeing himself as God sees him now as a clean individual. And through God's redemptive power, complete restoration, listen, listen, complete restoration of the heart is possible. God didn't call us to religious uh, rituals and routines. God calls us to an intimate encounter with himself so that we start to appreciate and understand that the line in following Jesus Christ is one deep and he cares about us individually and he wants to bring about transformation for us individually. Come on. That, that's what God wants to do. So David gets to this place of consecration. The word consecration is an interesting word. It means to separate yourself 
from the world and eliminate those things that are unclean that would contaminate your walk with God. So three words for me as I play on here. It's separation and elimination from contamination of those things of the world so that I can get clean and walk pure before God. So when we hear the word consecrated, there's similar words like to make pure, to make holy, to sanctify, to set apart. You ever ever hear those words? That's what we're talking about. It has been consecrated unto the Lord. It has been removed from the contamination. It has had separation from all the contamination, and now it has been set apart unto the Lord. That's what David is praying. Now, now when God saves us, he, he doesn't He doesn't leave us as orphans floating around. He gives us the power to say, now, since I've plucked you out of the ruins of darkness, living in darkness is not your identity any longer. I want to consecrate you. I want to take you from here. I'm going to set you apart to those things that are pure and those things that are holy and those things that are righteous and those things that glorify me. Come on. Everybody with me? Y'all are, y'all, y'all are just sitting there now. I just want to make sure. So this is a very, 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 very important phrase. I grew up in Noonan, all right? There, there was this lady that worked at Noonan High School in the cafeteria, and she had been healed from cancer. And my sister, man, I love this lady, but she had the big old high-stacked hairdo. And I was as lost as a whatever, Midget in a cornfield, ball in high weeds, whatever word you want to use. I was lost. And I remember talking to her one day, and she said, well, I'm holiness. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, I go to a holiness church. So what does that mean? Well, we shout where I go. I still didn't know what she meant. So y'all shout where you go. Now, this lady really loved God, and she really believed God, and she really glorified God for the miracle in her life. But I heard people say that before. You ever heard that phrase? Well, that's a sanctified church over there. Can I tell you something? If they are a church, and the word church means those who are redeemed under the shed blood of Jesus and belong to Christ, every church is sanctified. Whether they're walking in the sanctification, whether they're walking in the holiness, whether they're walking in the purity, whether they're walking consecrated unto the Lord, you can't be a member of the church and not be sanctified and holy. It is a contradiction of terms when you study Scripture. So David is like consecrating himself unto the Lord. David is receiving God, setting him apart. Even Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 6, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Come out, consecrate, separate, walk holy like I've made you powerful. So David prays this, do not cast me away from your presence. Lord, you you, you know I've confessed and I've received your cleansing and I know that you've cleaned my heart up and I've asked you to create in me a new heart. Lord, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain a willing spirit. 
in me. Then I will teach transgressors your, ra- your ways. Then sinners will be converted to you. This is a phenomenal piece right here. David starts by saying, do not cast me away from your presence. I've been in your presence. I've walked in your light. I've embraced incredible fellowship with you. I know what it's like to have communion with you, God. I know based on my behavior and what I've done and my sin is ever before me. I know, this is what he's saying. Listen, listen, listen. I know I deserve to be doomed and damned to hell. I know what I deserve. Can I tell you something? Listen, listen. Quit ranking sin. Quit keeping score. Quit attacking what you feel you're less likely to do. If you get right before a holy God and you realize how holy this God is, the fact that he would rescue you and I from the domains of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of light, if we ever come to grips with God, we will say, I deserve to be doomed and damned is what I deserve. It sobers us up. It makes us realize that we're not entitled. And we go, what do you deserve? I deserve to be doomed and damned forever. Why? Because I was born into the world in iniquity and sin. That's what David says, even from my mom's womb, sin nature written all over me. Not blaming that. That's not an excuse. That's not justifying. That's just a reality. But Lord, when I see who you are and how powerful and mighty and holy and perfect you are, I deserve that. Please do not cast me away from your presence. Don't hurl me away from your presence. Then he says, do not take the Holy Spirit from me. This is the first time the word Holy Spirit appears in the Bible. This is the first time the third member of the Godhead is emphasized. It's only mentioned one other time in Isaiah. And David was the second king of Israel. And David had seen a guy anointed by God by the name of Saul, who God had his hand on Saul. And David had seen the guy Saul violate obeying God and even tells him that partial obedience is like witchcraft, which scares me big time. Partial obedience is like witchcraft? Yeah. And, and, and David had seen God remove his hand, his spirit, from Saul. I mean, Saul was told to go to the land of the Amalekites and wipe it clean. Saul didn't rape the girl next door and kill her husband and a bunch of other people in the process. I, I look at David's junk compared to Saul's junk. I'm like, if anybody deserved to have the Spirit of God removed from their journey, you did until I pick up the mirror and go, I do. That, that, that's his prayer. God, I know that you can remove the spirit from me at any given time. You give me breath and life and you poured the spirit within me. 
I don't want to do anything to cause the spirit of the living God to be removed. Now, now I think we play with that in our society. I, I, I think we compromise and negotiate with the things of God at times. We, we've allowed certain objective truths to become just subjective opinions, and we've got to be careful with that. I don't want the Holy Spirit taken out of my life. I don't want your anointing to be removed. Please, God, I know that I've got to have you in me 24-7 if I'm going to be able to do life. Come on. There's a soberness where we need to do introspection ourselves. So do not take your Holy Spirit. Then he says this, restore to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I've blown it. I've messed it up. I receive your cleansing. The word restore even if you study Galatians 6, where it says, if a brother is called in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him. The word restore there is the portrait of taking a broken bone and setting it back in place so that healing can happen. I, I had all these surgeries and what, what, what happened? I had orthoscopic surgery. And what happened? They removed bone chips and they cut off a bone spur and they had some things they had to do. But I, I, I needed my arm to be able to straighten again. And, and David is saying, if you will restore to me the joy of your salvation that I once walked in, I know I forfeited it. I haven't been walking there because I've been covering my sin for the last year. Lord, I would be so thankful. I need to be restored. How often do we need to be restored? Pretty much every day. How often do we need to repent? Pretty much every day. How often do I need to be rescued? Every day. This is not a prayer that we read going, look at what I should have prayed when I first got saved. This is a prayer that we read in Psalm 51 that we should read every day to say, look, I am saved and I still need it daily. What it does is it keeps my feet on the ground. It keeps me in traction with where I am. So David is like, don't, don't cast me away. Don't remove your spirit. Restore the joy of your salvation. I know what it's like to walk with you. I know what it's like to be the little redheaded, freckle-faced boy that you take off the farm and use to kill a Goliath and raise him up as king. I know I don't want to lose that. Come on. Don't want to lose that. And then he says, sustain me with a willing spirit. The word sustain, Nick, means to rest on and to press into. We use that phrase, and that's what David is saying. Sustain me. I want my spirit to be willing. I want to keep pressing into you, and I want to keep depending on you, and I want to keep leaning into you. I don't want to ever get tired of leaning into you. I don't want to go to secular psychology, and I don't want to just go to what's popular today. I don't want to lean into this carnal crap. I want to lean into you. When that happens, watch, 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 watch. What happened? I'm in the presence of God. He didn't remove the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do anything to quench the Holy Spirit. What, what, what happened? He's restored me. That which wasn't working right, that was out of joint. I'm able to run. I'm able to move. I've been sustained. I'm leaning in. I'm plugged in. Then he says this. Don't, don't, don't you miss this. 
if you will save me, if you will rescue me, if you will transform me, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then I will go out and sinners will repent and respond to you. If you will save me, I won't set on my tail and do nothing. I will go tell the world of how great you are. Now stop. A lot of people think that God just saved them to keep them out of hell so that they can slide into heaven. Wrong. Then I will. John Schmacher comes in. We pray every Sunday. He comes in and he goes, let me tell you about, and he calls the guy's name, Joe. He goes, Joe is opening up. Joe's sharing his story. Joe is getting set free. We met yesterday, Cash. I can't believe it. And I said, John, seven years ago, you came to faith in Jesus. You were plucked out of the ruins of darkness, and you were transferred into the glorious light. John, guess what you're doing? You're teaching transgressors. And a lot of us never teach transgressors. No, I'm not qualified. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. The, the gospel is for you to take to the streets. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a witness. A witness just tells his story. A witness just says, I'm not here to pressure you to respond. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But I can tell you one thing. Let me tell you the story of grace that's radically changed me based on this intimate encounter I've had with the Spirit. What are you doing? I'm witnessing. Esposito and I have talked. Is there any pressure on the witness? No. What does a witness do? They tell what they saw. They tell what they experienced. They tell what happened to them. Man, I'll never forget. I was so scared. And I didn't know this Psalm 51. But I was about five months into the faith. And man, we want you to share with this men's group. And I'm like, yes. I'm so scared. You got 20 minutes? Okay. Four and a half minutes. I'm tapped out. I'm done. I don't have anything else. I don't know what else to say. It's not like anybody ever trained me, but it wouldn't have mattered. And I said, I'm stupid. I don't make any sense. I can't articulate statements. They gave me 20. I went four and a half. I tapped out. I will never do that again. I'm not doing that anymore. And then I got back. And it was on my face reading the word. And God goes, you can't do it? I said, No. He goes, do you think I can do it through you? I'm like, yeah. You're not going to share out of gratitude how good I am? A year ago, you were hammered, dude. Stinking 12-pack, what was that doing for you? Those one-night stands, what was that doing for you? What did I save you from? You saved me from all that. What did you save me to? A holy, pure, right God who loves me and digs me no matter what. But I need some training. He goes, no, you don't need seminary. 
You need the Holy Spirit, and I've given him to you. Trust him. Now go teach transgressors how good I am. Me? Yeah. You. I go back and play ball, and I'm like, can I share with you what's happened? A couple of teammates. I was in spring training. I'm about three weeks into spring training in 1986. The minor league director for the Houston Astros, Charlie Stanley. Hey, I need to talk to you. I'm like, cool. So he pulls me into his office and he goes, What happened to you? So, what do you mean? He goes, You're one of the hardest throwing pitchers we've got in camp. I mean, you were just a suspect. What happened to you? I said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. All this hell raising and drinking and partying. Let me tell you, dude, I met Jesus. I started reading the word and started praying, Charlie, I can't believe what God has done in my life. And then I got on this throwing program after having my elbow done, and I got on this core training program. Well, you're really throwing hard. No, dude, I met Jesus Christ. He changed me. What happened to you? I just want to know why you're throwing hard and getting people out. I can't answer that question without sharing with you that I was given a clean heart. I'm not contaminated anymore. You can do it. I mean, that's like Bobby Boucher Theology 101, right? You can do it, but you can do it. You can teach transgressors the ways of God. You can do it. You're the only one that can share your story with the world. I I was reading this thing the other day, and they were like, people that are very grateful and thankful and just are, are, are living a life of gratitude. The scientific study said they're less likely to get sick and to suffer disease than people that are grouchy and grumpy and angry. <laughs> thankful? What are you thankful for? I'm thankful that I get to know God and I get to teach transgressors. When do you do it? <laughs> Because I know the one who can change transgressors. That means willfully, willfully choosing to rebel and not repent. Who gets to do it, Esposito? We do. The least of these. The foolish things of the world. We do. Are you doing it? So so here's what we're going to do. We're going to move into a time. Of, a, of, of prayer here in a few moments. <clears throat> I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to pray with you. We're going to receive our offering. And then Nick and Lisa are going to come, and we're just going to have a time of prayer. But I would challenge you to respond to the Holy Spirit and reach out during these next moments. 